Hi, this is Fred Lipsius, one of the original members from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is the one and only Al Cooper. He was a member of the Blues Project, a wonderful band that I love. And then he was the founder of Blood, Sweat and Tears, where he introduced a horn section into rock music. They were one of the most innovative and greatest bands of the era. He was also the force behind Super Session, the album he made with Michael Bloomfield and Stephen Stills, which many regard as the first supergroup. And as a session musician, Al played that monumentally memorable organ riff on Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. He also played that exquisite French horn part on the Rolling Stones' You Can't Always Get What You Want. As a producer, he discovered the band Leonard Skinner. And as a writer, he was the co-writer of Gary Lewis's number one hit, This Diamond Ring. All I can say is, wow. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all of my musician guests, Al and I are going to do a song fest. This one's going to be longer because to cover his entire career, I had to keep adding songs into this. But you'll hear a bit of them. We'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow. And in this instance, I'm going to surprise you, Al. My featured song is my cover version of Dublé's The Captain of Her Heart featuring Judy Zook on vocals by my band Project Grand Slam on our album Play. This is from about 2007. I chose this because after it was released, I got a lovely email out of the blue from some guy named Al Cooper telling me how much he liked our version of this song. So I thought that it worked. So, Al Cooper, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you very much. Al, you've done so much in your life. And, you know, I followed your career from the beginning. We're both Queens boys, I might add. You grew up in Queens, right? Yep. And I grew up in Queens as well. So I liked you right from the beginning when I heard that you were from Queens. And everybody, including myself, thinks of you as a keyboard artist and a star. But the thing that was most surprising to me in your entire career was that French horn part you played on the Stone song. Tell me about this. When did you learn French horn? In college. Okay. But why? Why did you pick French horn? What was the deal? Well, you had to pick something in that category. And uh, I always liked French horn. So I thought, well, here I can get 
comparatively free lessons and see what I can do. Well, you, you mastered it right away. I mean, unbelievable. I don't know about that. I always said to people, if you want to get your kid into college, you got one way to do it, and that is teach them either oboe or French horn, okay? Because they're so hard to play. Well, I mean, I didn't know how to play. I had to take an instrument in that category. And so I, I chose French horn because I, I wanted to know how to play. Well, when you did it on the Stone Song, you certainly knew how to play. Well, we won't talk about how long that took. All right, we're going to get to that song as part of the Songfest, so we'll hold that for now. I'm just telling you, I was surprised as can be when I found out a long time ago that that's what you did. You played the French horn on that one. All right, so let's start. Tell us about the Blues Project, because it was one of my favorite groups as I was growing up. I mean, you guys ruled New York City. Tell me about your experience with the Blues Project. Well, they asked me to join. At the time, I had done um, uh, like a Rolling Stone with Dylan, but I, I wasn't in a, a band per se. So I thought it was a good idea because I, I like being in bands. And so I said yes. And um, we didn't have any jobs to play anywhere. So we just uh, rehearsed in uh, people's living rooms until we could get a job somewhere. And we, we did get a stint at the Cafe Agogo in the village in New York. And that became our home base. And we played there, you know, quite a bit till uh, uh, we got a record deal and then started going on the road. Right. You did that live album at the Cafe Go-Go. Yeah. Okay. My favorite was always your second album, which was Projections. You know, again, I'm a kid learning how to play rock and roll. And you guys had that great cover photo and that great band. You also played at the Monterey Pop Festival, didn't you? I did, but I did that. I was in between bands. So I, I played a, a, a short solo set. And also, I was working as the assistant stage manager. So I was there the whole time. So they let me have a little spot. All right. I want to talk about Blood, Sweat and Tears because that to me was, you know, just a monster undertaking on your part. You know, I've had four guys from the band on this podcast. I started off, I had Steve Katz as one of my earliest interviews. Then I had Jim Fielder, your bass player. And he was very important to me because I'm a bass player and I must have played on I Can't Quitter, his bass part, three million times, okay, as I was growing up. Then I had Randy Brecker on recently and then Fred Lipsius, who connected me with you. So you had just an incredible band that you put together. Tell me about that. Well, I'm, I was in the Blues Project and I wanted to add horns to the Blues Project. And the leader of the Blues Project, who was Danny Kalb, said he didn't want to do that. So I said, okay, I'm going to have to figure out what to do. So I said, well, I'll, I'll leave the Blues Project and I'll start another band with uh, horns. And so that's what I did. All right. How did you accumulate these guys? I mean, they're just some of the best musicians that were available. Well, I, I listened to every possible person 
I could get to audition, and uh, and they were the best of the ones we auditioned. They certainly were. All right, when you were growing up, what was the music that attracted you the most? When I was growing up. Define how old you want to talk about. <laughs> when you started playing, all right, you're probably a teenager, and uh, what were you listening to? What turned you on the most? Well, I listened to the, the radio, and um, I was very fond of this black station that just played black music. And so I listened to that. It was very hard to get on the radio. And I heard, you know, music I would never have heard anywhere else. And uh, that really helped me tremendously. It is interesting how so much of the black music of America was kind of ignored by us for so long. The guys in England kind of, you know, all coveted that music. They redid it and they gave it back to us. And then I think America rediscovered black music, at least the blues part. <laughs> well, I would say uh, the rhythm and blues too. Yeah. I mean, was that stuff that you were listening to when you were, again, growing up and getting into music? Oh, yeah. I want to understand, you know, because you have, you, there's so many things that you've done. I'm trying to understand where did it come from? What turned you on when you first started playing? Well, the radio. I just heard great stuff on the radio. And so I started buying 45s and really, you know, learning how to play what was on them. And then as I got better at it, I wanted to start writing songs. So I did that. And then I got a job as a songwriter, you know, where I, I went to the office every day and wrote songs. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. In 1994, I recorded my first album called Miles Behind. It features world-class guest musicians like Randy Brecker of Blood, Sweat and Tears, Anton Figg of The David Letterman Show, Al Foster from Miles Davis's band, and Tim Reese from The Rolling Stones. I'm excited to say that this album has just been released on the internet for the first time. The 10 tracks include originals like Child's Play. Plus reimagined covers of Jimi Hendrix's Fire, Korea's Sea Journey.
I'm very proud of this album. It's crossover jazz that's been called hip, tight, and edgy. I think that captures it. Miles Behind can be streamed on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms. As always, I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. You know, that's a great segue into this Songfest portion of this interview. You and I shared before we got on the air here, your original demo of This Diamond Ring, okay, which became a number one hit for Gary Lewis and the Playboys. And we're playing that little demo now. Who wants to buy this diamond ring? She took it off her finger now. It doesn't mean a thing. This diamond ring doesn't shine for me anymore. And this diamond ring doesn't mean what it meant before. Tell me a little bit about it, because it's totally different than the number one hit was. Well, I wrote it as a um, R&B song. So I, I was really surprised when I heard the Gary Lewis record. And I never thought that anything would happen to it. And it became, you know, like the, the biggest song of my entire career. <laughs> So you had no part in taking what you originally wrote and turning it into that Gary Lewis hit, I take it. No, absolutely no part. And I, I wouldn't have been capable of doing that. Well, listen, it did set his whole career on fire for sure. It, was, it didn't hurt mine. I'm sure it didn't. All right, let's move on, because you mentioned before, you know, that unbelievable situation with Dylan. Now, the story is, you kind of snuck into the recording studio when Dylan and the band were doing Like a Rolling Stone. Is that true or not? Absolutely not. On every level that you talked fact about, the band was not there. Uh, I was invited by the producer to watch the session from the control room. Uh -huh. And uh, the only person of note on that session was uh, Mike Bloomfield. All the rest of the people were studio musicians. That's where I met Mike Bloomfield. All right, but tell me about the session itself. You're saying that nobody else was in the studio at that time when you recorded your part? No, nobody that anyone would know of. They were studio musicians. 
Right. And also, I never heard of Mike Bloomfield till that day. Well, you certainly heard of him afterwards, for sure. So Tom Wilson invited me to the session to watch because we were friends, and he knew I was a Dylan fan. So I sat in the control room, and I was watching. And they took a break before they started recording. And I went in there, and I saw that the organ was turned on. Uh, no one was playing the organ. It was just a piano player. So I saw that someone had turned it on. It's very complicated to turn on a organ if you don't know what you're doing. So I said, this is great. And so I sat down at the organ, and I think it was uh, uh, take four. They'd already done three takes. So I sort of memorized, you know, the chords and everything. And then when they started take four, Tom Wilson said, it's on, it's on tape. You, you can hear it. I says, all right, this is take four, like a Rolling Stone. Hey, what are you doing out there? And everybody in the studio laughed. And Tom Wilson started laughing and he said, okay, there we go. This is take four, like a Rolling Stone. And we started playing and we played it all the way through, which the other takes hadn't done yet. And then they went in and listened to it and liked it and said, um, well, let's, let's see if we can do it better. And we did uh, 16 takes. 16 takes. Yeah. Wow. I mean, some didn't go all the way through because it's a six-minute song. Right. And then they went back to uh, take four and use that. Where was Dylan all this time? In the studio. I mean, he was in the control room. Was he in the, in the uh, recording portion of this? What, what was he doing? He was all over the place. Okay. So you went back to take four. Well, he went back to take four and decided that that was the take. And like I said, we had done 16 takes. So by that time, I think that was the end of the session. Okay. Well, look, what you played on that song became, as I said, just one of the most memorable parts that anybody has played on anything. So kudos to you. Also, Mike Bloomfield's part was pretty damn good. True. But, you know, it was the organ part that is memorable on that song. Fantastic. All right. I want to switch over to the blues project because one of the great songs you guys did was Wake Me, Shake Me, which my high school band had in our set list. Tell me a little bit about the music that you were doing with the Blues Project. Well, we were playing um, old blues songs that we all liked. And um, Wake Me, Shake Me, I had heard in a 
gospel context, because I like gospel, black gospel music very much. And I listened to a lot of that growing up. So that's where I got that from. And I always wanted to do it. And so that, that became an opportunity for me to do it. Also, uh, the bass player, Andy Kohlberg, doubled on flute. And um, he wanted to play something. So I, I wrote a flute thing for him. And that worked out very well, too. Yeah, beautiful song, for sure. Let's go to Super Session, which I remember absolutely to the minute when I bought that album. You had Mike Bloomfield on one side of the record. You had Stephen Stills on the other side. You were the glue that held it together. It was a fantastic record. And uh, my favorite of all the songs, and they, they were all great, but I just love what you did with Donovan's Season of the Witch with Steve Stills. When I look in my window, yeah, there's so many people to be. It's strange. I think it's strange right now. To pick up every stitch. You do now. You got to pick up every stitch right now. You've got to pick up every stitch. Hey, hey. So talk to me about that song and about the album. Well, that was that became the standout song from the album. So you weren't the only one that liked it. And um, it was just a jam session. So we played for about four hours the first night and about maybe six hours the second night. And... Uh, Mike could only play the first night, so I had to find somebody else. And I, I knew Steve Stills. He was in the Buffalo Springfield at the time. And so the morning of the session, I called him up and explained the situation to him. And he said, actually, uh, we're just rehearsing, so I could come do that. I said, that's great. Thank you so much. And then he came down and. Uh, we jammed. So the original plan was was not to include Steve Stills. It just happened that way, huh? Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that uh, Bloomfield couldn't play the second night until the first night. So I had to find somebody. 
Well, the way it came across, it was, as I said, just a great record. It was one of those, you know, turning points in rock and roll, in my opinion. So many people, including myself, regarded that as the first super group, even though you guys didn't play all three of you together. No, I played um I played some concerts with Bloomfield when the record uh was big. And we just became really good friends. And uh, to follow up Superposition, we played two nights at the Fillmore West. And we recorded that. And we put out a double album. And that was the, the, the follow up to Superposition. Right. Okay. And Superposition, in my mind, led into Blood, Sweat, and Tears. 1968 was just a big year for you. And uh, I already mentioned that I loved I Can't Quit Her. Tell me about your favorite songs on that first album. Hmm. <laughs> I have to remember what they were. Well, <laughs> the ones that stood out over time were I Love You More Than You'll Ever Know. Myself as well. Is that in a way for a man to carry on? You think it wants his little loved one gone. I love you, baby, more than you'll ever know. And uh, I Can't Quit Her, I think were the, the two biggies. They were spectacular. Tell me about the cover photo, okay? I've asked a few of the guys from the band about that. For anybody that doesn't know, Child is Father to the Man, you had the, the whole band sitting there in chairs with these little kids on your lap, and the kids all had your faces, okay? It was such a cool album cover. Whose idea was that? That was my idea. I, I needed something for the title, Child is Father to the Man. That's how I thought of that. And I also knew, I can't remember his name now, a photographer who had done that in a photo, had a, a, a bald guy with a little kid sitting on his lap, and the little kid had the same face as the bald guy. So that's where I got the idea for the cover. Well, I will tell you, it was very memorable. Okay, there's not too many covers that stand out in people's minds, but that was one. I'm glad. <laughs> All right. Tell everybody, why'd you decide to move on from Blood, Sweat, and Tears after that first album? Uh, I don't think they wanted to do what I wanted to do. And 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 they were 
they were already behind my back planning to kick me out of the band, which was funny because it was my band. Now, that's interesting because I did not hear that from anybody else. That they were going to kick you out. Why do you think so? I didn't quit. I did not quit. If anyone who said I quit, why would I quit? There was this great idea I had, and the first album was great. And why would I quit? I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Me neither. So I did. <laughs> I got kicked out of the band. Anyway, it was a wonderful album, a wonderful band, and kudos to you again. The band did not like me after the uh, uh, going through the first album. And so it became very difficult for me to exist in that framework. And uh, I didn't want to quit the band, but I didn't want to be resented every day. So I had my ideas for the second album, and nobody wanted to do them. So it, it just seemed like it wasn't a good idea after that. There was no reason I couldn't stay there because I couldn't get what I needed for the second album. Mm. And either could they. Listen, bands come and go. It's too bad that you departed after that first album, but you left behind something very memorable. Yeah, but they continued it. Well, they went off in that different direction. Okay. But uh... I don't think they went in a different direction. They had a horn band. And they played songs with horns in it. Yeah. I guess I was referring to David Clayton Thomas taking over the vocals. Well, he was a better singer than I was. <laughs> well, you were a pretty good singer yourself. All right, I want to move on to that Rolling Stones song, okay? Tell me how it developed. You were the guy that they picked to do a French horn part, and you can't always get what you want. First of all, I was in England, and they asked me if I would come play on their session. So I said, yeah, who wouldn't want to play with the Rolling Stones? So I went to the session, and we cut that song, and I played the organ and the piano at the session. And by this time, I was working at Columbia Records as a, a staff producer. And I had taken a, a vacation to England just to buy records and, you know, mess around. And then I came back to work and they called me and asked me, because I, I came up with that idea for the horn in the beginning. And I played it for them on the organ and I said it'd be great if you could get a, a a trumpet or a trombone to play this in the beginning so about three weeks later Jagger called me up and said uh, if we sent you the tapes would you put 
that figure that you wrote on the beginning of the song? And I said, sure. So they sent me the tapes and took me a couple of hours, but I was able to do it. And I sent them the tape back. Listen, it was a brilliant, brilliant idea. Okay. It was so different and it went so well with what else was on that song. Well, it was, you know, it was 50-50. What do you mean? Well, they actually asked me to do it. We couldn't do it at the session because there was no French horn and they were trying to get a good recording of the song. So in retrospect, he, he wrote me and said, would you put the French horn on the beginning and sent me the tapes? I'm just saying that, that, first of all, it was your idea to have that part. And kudos to them that they saw the wisdom of that and asked you to do it. But when you step back and you think about that French horn introduction, if you will, in the rest of that song, it was just a brilliant move. I mean, it, it wasn't a logical kind of thing that you would think of, but it worked perfectly. It was a logical thing to me. <laughs> I know it was logical to you. Well, that's what I'm saying. So, so I mean, th that's the way I thought. And they let me do it. Well, that's why you're Al Cooper. Good for you. Okay, I want to move over. You discovered Leonard Skinner, and you produced their first three albums, I believe. Tell me about that whole experience. Well, I went to Atlanta to see what was going on. And I think I had lived there previously. And a guy I knew owned a, a, a good bar there. So while I was there for about a week, I asked him if I could uh, hang out at the bar at night. And he welcomed me. And I sat there in the first few days I heard a band that was, you know, just a regular band. But it was a uh, uh, it was a, uh, a a great place, and they usually had good bands play there. So the second week, in comes this band, and I have to hear them play three sets a night if I'm going to sit in that club. So the first night I said, "This is very good. I like this." I sat there another couple of nights, and then I asked them if I could sit in because they didn't have a keyboard player, and there was a piano on stage. And they let me sit in, and it was fun. And by the end of their engagement, I had their phone number and everything, and I asked them if I could produce them and offered them a record deal because I had a production deal with MCA Records at the time. And they accepted. And so we did the first album. But we did it in Atlanta. There's a studio there that I worked in when I, when I lived there briefly. And so we did it in that studio. They were from Jacksonville, Florida. Got it. So uh, Sweet Home Alabama, that was, I guess, their first big hit. 
in a way, but on the first album was Freebird. And that was big, but it wasn't big the same way that the other one was. Like on the radio, you mean? Yes. But it was big. It helped sell the first album tremendously. Right. Well, just another part of uh, the career of Al Cooper doing something like that. I wouldn't have guessed that, you know, from everything else that you had done. It was a little far afield. But what was it that in particular attracted you to Leonard Skinner? They were a great band and they wrote great songs. I mean, that simple. If I listened any other way, I, I don't know. But I always listened as a, uh, as a producer. Got it. All right. One last one that I wanted to bring up was you worked with George Harrison. And uh, I didn't know this until I started doing some work with you on this interview. All those years ago in 1981 was a song that you were involved with. Tell us about that. Hmm. I'm trying to think how it happened, and I can't recall. <laughs> but uh, uh, we always got along very well. And it happened while I lived in England. So it was easy to do. He was about a, a, a two-hour drive from where I lived in England. And uh, there were other musicians coming to the session so I could get a ride because I didn't have a car when I lived in England. And so I, I was able to get a ride and, and, uh, and be on all the sessions. And we really got along very well and remained uh, good friends. Did you ever do anything else with George? I'm trying to think. Yeah, but I, I can't remember what. <laughs> but later on, when he came to America, he completely surprised me and rang my doorbell one night. And it was 11 o'clock at night. I wasn't used to people ringing my doorbell at 11 o'clock at night. So I was sort of like, who is this? And I, lo I looked out and I opened, you know, through the thing and I went, holy mackerel. So I opened the door and I said, oh. There's a beetle at my door. And we laughed and he came in and uh, he was in town and he wanted to know where to go to buy this and where to go to buy that. And so I, I told him and I went with him the next day to a few places, music stores and clothing stores. What town was this? Was it New York or L.A. or what? L.A. I see. Well... Your career has just spanned so many people and places and bands. I mean, you've you've got Dylan, you got the Stones, you got the Beatles in there, or at least George. You've had quite a career. Are you still playing now? What's going on with you now? Well, I'm I'm gonna be eighty in a few weeks, so uh, 
there's not much I can do. So luckily I've been married to the same wonderful woman for over 20 years. And uh, we're pretty happy together. Good for you. And we have a great dog. So I'm comfortable. I, I wish I could do more, but uh, this is just how it is. All right. We have been speaking here with the great Al Cooper. Al, you've had one heck of a career. Just spectacular. I'm so glad to see that you're still up and around and you still got your good sense of humor as well. And I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to listen now to that song that started off this episode. It's my cover version of The Captain of Her Heart. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. so hard to keep